America's most expensive home for sale hit the market this week. How much do you think it's? How much do you think it is? Most expensive home. Yeah, for knowing sale. nothing about where it is, what it looks like. How much do you think? This is not a quiz show, by the way. <laughs> how about how about two hundred seventy-five million? Oh my God, it's pretty close. Is it two hundred ninety-five million? This is a nine-acre compound in Naples, Florida. <laughs> Imagine, uh, it was like um, it was built by it was built in the wait. This is the this is the part that this guy found it. Whoa, he, John Donahue, Whoa. his uh, his family's like a big investment banking family, I guess. Okay. And uh, in the 1980s, he was in in a helicopter or on a flight, and they were flying over Naples, Florida, and he saw this peninsula jutting into the Gulf of Mexico that had nothing on it, and it's called Gordon Point. And he said to his wife, "I, I want to go and see what that is." 1985, he bought it for a million dollars. It's now uh, they've amassed 60 acres. It, oh they God. have 13 children, 84 grandchildren. Like and, is this whole that whole thing? Yeah, or, or what? Yeah, the, this is the whole, oh, this that whole thing is one property that they're selling for two hundred ninety-five million. That's yeah, not my wow. style. <laughs> it's not your yeah. You oh, uh, Rich, but this they is the take, family. This is the family that owns uh, Federated Investors. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, it's the sure. the Donahue family, and they. Uh, it's a, so it's, it's kind of a cool story because cool. he used it to keep like the family together, and so like. There are hundreds of members of this family that the, have fond memories growing up at this compound that's cool. outside of Naples. So I'm interested. They take credit cards? Yeah. So. Take a look. <laughs> yeah. Go kick the go I think there's an open house uh, on Sunday. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> have, have fun doing that. Um I have been wanting to have you here uh for so long because well, thank you. you're so I know a lot of former Merrill guys. And within ten minutes of talking to any I used to be a, a retail broker. Uh, within 10 minutes of talking to any Merrill broker back in the day or Merrill financial advisor now, your name usually comes up. And, oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah, and I know you know that, but you still have this huge following from people that you were influential toward um, for your whole tenure there. You His name's come up here a few times. Your name comes up here all the time. We really? read your Belsky? stuff. Belsky? Was Belsky? Oh, you were Belsky? Belsky? Sure. Yeah, he was Bel- in my group for yeah. a while. Yep. Sure. So he's, he's a good guy. How long were you – but you weren't at Merrill for like a million years. How long were you there? Uh, a little over 20. Tw- okay. Oh, oh so you were there for a Like a good million. cop. I put in my 20 and that was yeah. it. Last week we did a thing about um, how, or two weeks ago, we did a thing about how Mike Wilson at Morgan Stanley stepped away from the chief strategist role. And it prompted me to look up uh, Chuck Clow, oh. that story. And then they, so he steps down at the peak of the dot-com mania. Right. And he looks right in hindsight. Uh, they had put a, a young woman into this slot. I forgot her name just now. But then you end up coming in after her. Right. Okay. Christine Kelly's. So she was like more of a growth manager, which is what the bank wanted at the time. Yep. And then it blew up through no fault of hers. Nope. And then you're the value guy. They put you in an O2. And I remember saying to myself, almost anybody would have crushed it coming in an O2. <laughs> uh, the, the S&P is down 50%. Right. We had Enron, WorldCom, 9-11, .com blow up, like all within 18 months. Yep. You basically stepped into a smoking crater. Um, but then there was a really nice five-year run for, for stocks into yeah. the next crater. Um, but that was like a kind of – that was a fortuitous time for you to start as the strategist in Merrill. 
Yeah, it was good. It was a good time to start. Although I have to admit that 2003 was probably the worst year of my career. I don't think I got anything right okay. in 2003. What didn't, didn't work for what you? What didn't work? Uh, everything. <laughs> didn't get the call on the market right. Didn't call on sectors. Didn't get a call. I mean, like okay. nothing. Well, and, oh, um, so I, it's I rare that that happens, but that. What I remember about 03 is that the first thing to start working were like the biotechs and the really yeah. speculative small caps. Exactly. Those were r- racing higher before the 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 S&P. Yeah. That's okay. Right. Yeah. So you got that backwards? Got that backwards. Oh, big deal. Yeah. I mean, it's all right. It, with, it worked out okay. It worked yeah, out it'll, fine. It'll, everything, <laughs> everything worked out great. Worked out great. And when, but, did you, uh, when, when did you step away from Merrill and start your own thing? So left Merrill in the spring of 2009. Okay. Uh, started RBA legally the end of 2000. Wait, hold on. Also amazing timing. Oh, that was that was a little bit more on purpose than – Yeah, okay. Than, no, you know, I understand cause that. Because the first one, you don't get to choose when you step into these positions. Yeah. But this one was um, – combination, you know, Merrill wasn't Merrill anymore. Yeah, I know. Which was fine. I mean, it just – you know, and I was kind of burnt out. Right. Needed a change. And uh, 2009, I remember exactly where I was. I was sitting there uh, – in our uh, in our den, and I was watching CNBC, and they and weekly initial jobless claims came out, and yeah. they were like massively positive. Yeah, and I sat there and I said, "This doesn't happen if everything's falling apart." Yeah, I said, "This is it. This is the beginning." Yeah, and so we were talking about starting a firm, but then it was definite we were going to start a firm. Okay, and we're going to talk more about the firm that you started, but the decision was we want to do asset management. And I think that was a brilliant decision in hindsight because you had a lot of people leave Merrill. Right. But they wanted your insight on their assets. And that's how – that was a way to do it. It was like, it was, hey, you believe in, in my research? Uh, I think I can help you and your clients. Yeah. I'm your new asset manager. We don't need we, – we disintermediate Mother Merrill and we're back together again. It was, it was great. I mean it, – and if you remember, a lot of management from Merrill left – and went to other firms. Yeah. So some of them went to UBS. Some went to Morgan Stanley. So the so good thing about that, we had we had a foot in the door. Yeah. Right. And and uh, you know they still went through the due diligence process. Not like we just walked in, but it was clearly a leg up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's all. I love that, that story. Was great. All right. So uh, are we are we getting underway? All right. So I'm so happy we're doing the show today. Hey John, what uh what episode is this? Episode 130. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Redholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Redholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to today's episode brought to you by Carta, the all-in-one platform transforming how financial advisors and asset management firms manage their equity plans. No matter your ownership structure, Carta provides the expertise to handle your equity plan, valuation, and distributions. That's right, Michael. With Carta, you have a single source of truth for your firm's equity plan and can easily share K-1s and statements with equity owners. Carta also provides audit defensible valuations at a fraction of the cost of other providers and can help you distribute capital to your investors and owners. So if you're thinking about issuing shares to your employees, preparing for M&A, or just tired of managing your cap table in Excel, join the over 40,000 private companies that have chosen Carta. 
See how Carta can simplify your equity management today by going to Carta.com slash compound. That's Carta.com slash compound for more. Oh my God. 130. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the hottest investing podcast literally in America. This past uh, episode we did with Michael Semblist is on the verge of breaking 100,000 downloads in podcast terms, guys. That's like a lot of downloads in, in investing, right? You guys, it's right? It's All right. Uh, I think we're about to top that, though. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> we, have a, we have a guest here today that I've been looking forward to having on the show for such a long time. I've been a fan of his and a reader of his research for as long as I can remember. If you've ever worked in financial advice or wealth management, if you've ever spent any time at any of the wirehouses, uh, if you've ever read Barron's, watched CNBC, you know his name, you respect the brand. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Mr. Rich Bernstein, welcome to the show. Thank you. Your crowd is going crazy. Yeah, You're I used know. to that though, right? You're yeah. accustomed to that? No, no. Melissa, does he get Nothing. that everywhere you guys go? Yes? All right. Yeah. All right. Uh, Rich is the CEO and CIO of Richard Bernstein Advisors, otherwise known as RBA, an investment manager with more than $15 billion in assets. Rich has appeared on CNBC, Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, and others. Prior to RBA, Richard was the chief investment strategist at Merrill Lynch. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, What's your year-end price target? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so we're going to start where I think we have to start. It was yet another week during which Magnificent Seven Bubble Talk dominated the headlines and with good reason. Uh, we've had all of the earnings from these companies and they were pretty darn good. Not NVIDIA. Uh, well, no, I'm going. I'm going there. Um, the last one to report is uh, next Wednesday after mm -hmm. the close on the 21st. Expectations are high. They've been high. The company somehow continues to find a way to shock us to the upside. It's really been incredible. Um, but you are now openly referring to this group of stocks, not each of them individually, but as a theme, mm -hmm. as a bubble. Yeah. Most of your peers are not, or they're afraid to go there, but you're saying it. You're yeah. saying it out loud. Yeah. Respect. I, Why? I, I think, look, there's... Um, we could argue all day long whether they deserve the valuations that they're getting and all the hype and everything else. But the way I look at it is very simply, are there really only seven growth stories in the entire global equity market? No. Clearly, clearly but there's you, more. That's what you think people think? No, that I think that they don't appreciate that. They think there's something unique and special about these seven companies. Okay. There is. And, and well, but they're not, I, I would say maybe they're, I would argue whether they're special or not, but let's assume they're special for a second. They're not unique. We've done studies where we've looked for growth companies around the world, and four of the Magnificent Seven don't even pass the screens. 130 or 140 other companies pass the screens. And the fastest growing of the Magnificent Seven ranks like number 25 or 27 or something like that. So when you've got more than – you've got the majority of the Magnificent Seven not even qualifying in a growth screen, but you've got all this hype and the valuations everything else – uh, my argument is simply there's got to be something what if, else. What if that the people screen is not growth? What if the screen is growth plus moat plus uh, balance sheet strength plus profit margins? Then well, they're I pretty think, special. Well, I think moat moat's an interesting question because there's no way you can really measure moat. It's a subjective type of of discussion, and and moats moats are good, but most moats are not deep enough or wide enough or don't have the crocodiles enough Forever. to keep out the competition, right? right? And and I think that's something they forget. In certain cases, people are 
underestimating the cyclicality in some of these companies. I mean, I don't want to name names, but for somebody to say that a semiconductor company isn't cyclical is kind of wild. That amazes me, given that two years ago when the economy was in trouble, their earnings went down. Now their earnings, the economy is getting better, which nobody agrees with. Everybody thinks the economy is terrible, but the same company right. is doing tremendously well. Wait, semiconductors aren't recession-proof? No. <laughs> but but it, it, can it also so, be true that there are cyclical companies – that encounter a secular phase of growth that overwhelms the meaning of the cycle and that NVIDIA in the AI revolution could just be that story? So I, I, for that, I think you have to go back and you have to look at the tech bubble. And I think the there are many analogies to the tech bubble that I think are, are accurate and correct. And what you, the, our main story has been you have to separate out the economic story from the investment story. Okay. So let's go back to 2000. The story back then was the internet, and the internet was going to be change the economy. And the internet did change the economy, change the economies and in, in, change the economy in ways that we could never have anticipated, you know, during that period. I mean, you know, look at the whole notion of what we're doing right here. Yeah. That was, uh, nobody envisioned that. And, and so the internet did change the economy. But if you bought NASDAQ at the peak of the bubble, it took you 14 years to break even. If you were smart and you bought it a year before the peak of the bubble, it still took you 11 years to break even. So, And all the predictions about the revolution were true? They all came true. The price you paid was more important than the predictions. Exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, Is this really comparable to that? I think it is. Okay. I, I, I do think it is because now let's take out the internet, put in AI. Sure. I think you've got a very similar type of story going on where I don't doubt for a second that AI is going to change the economy. Not for a nanosecond do I believe that. Of course it's going to change the economy in ways that we can't envision today. Yeah, that will happen. It doesn't necessarily mean buying companies at lofty valuations is suddenly going to be profitable. So we say is, is Alphabet this, 18 times earnings comparable to Cisco at 80 times earnings? No, that may not be the that might, might not be the best one, but maybe I don't want to name names. Well, maybe I maybe those something perfectly, like though. yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but some of those. But I mean, if you think about back then, way way back then, I was I was on. If you remember Wall Street Week, I was on Rukeyser's um, panel. I sure do. And Rukeyser loved that I would do Cisco versus Cisco, CSCO versus SYY. The food service. Right. It's a, the most boring company in the world. Yeah. And and CSCO, I think, has just broken even from its um, uh, from its uh, bubble peak. You know, sort of like the Japan of stocks. Yeah. It's uh, but, just come but back. So, all right. But so Microsoft has broken even a long time ago and Apple. Yeah, and they some all of them, Some yeah. of them have. Yeah. So yeah. we say, is it comparable to, to the dot-com bubble? Certainly, maybe NVIDIA is the one to talk about it being bigger than the entire S&P 500 yeah. energy. Yeah. I mean, I mean this is kind of, not kind of, this is madness. Yeah, I think that's crazy. I think that's crazy. I mean, you know, first of all, um, it's, we already it's four know- four and a half percent of the S&P. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's kind of nutty because we already know that they're inviting competition. Right, you're seeing some of the other semiconductor stocks are now starting to talk about AI. Semiconductor companies, rather, talking about AI. The competition is starting to build, um, and uh, you know, competition puts pressure on margins. And so, Wang's else. argument is: the more of them that are building, the better, because they're all standardizing in our ecosystem, and we might be the software provider to the companies that are buying their chips. So he's almost looking at it like the fact that everyone is building AI. Yes, there might be some head-to-head -head competition, but the truth is 
the modernization of these data centers is going to require more than just our so, chips. So that is very that similar to the that argument before. that EMC made back in 1992. Oh, yeah. If you remember EMC, never forget. EMC was the storage company. Yeah. And everybody said, oh, the internet's going to create all this data and we're going to have to store the data. They were right about the data. What they didn't see was the cloud. Yeah. And EMC doesn't exist anymore. There's a guy that uh, the CEO of Databricks made some waves this week. Um, he gave an interview to The Information and he basically drew the the parallel between one minute there wasn't enough broadband to go around. Yes. Six months later, there was so much broadband, it was called dark fiber and they were burying it. Yeah. Uh, and he thinks that GPUs are going to have a similar demand curve. Like one day people are double and triple ordering just to make sure they're in line. And then the next day there were GPUs spilling out of the sky and nobody has a place to put them. That okay. might be like an extreme, uh, well, but we saw that with broadband. Right. And I, but, I was but there the and you were there. the economic principle is, is pretty sound, right? I mean, old time, if you go back through time, old recessions used to be inventory cycles. Yeah. Right? I mean, the whole economy would build too much and then it would collapse. And then nobody needed anymore. Yeah. And so what you're describing is kind of a microeconomic version of an inventory cycle. Okay. All right. Listen, I love that you're saying the, the bubble part out loud. But you would stipulate, even amongst that Magnificent Seven, the valuations are elevated for Apple and Microsoft. Mm -hmm. They don't look like 1999 uh, large cap stocks. They, they might in terms of their popularity, right. but they're not really being valued the way that we were valuing JDS Uniface. No, true, okay. true, true, true. I All think, right. but I think one of the things that people have to remember is a common thread right now is that these are real companies, and back in 99, 2000, they weren't real companies. But if you look at the real companies in 99, 2000, they suffered. Oh yeah, they suffered big time. I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm I'm on the record this week saying I own I own these stocks, and I think things are out of control. Um, Buffett's uh, 13G came out from uh, I should say Berkshire's. Uh, 13F came out from uh, Q4 uh, this morning. Looks like he sold about 10 million shares of Apple, which is no big deal, um, but he hasn't done it before. Right. He's only added. Um, so maybe we've reached the tipping point when it's like, yes, it's the best stock in the world. Right. And it's their biggest winner ever, we now know, in dollar terms. Right. But there's even, there's even a limit for, you know, there, there might be too much of a good thing there. I, I yeah, and, and again, I just think about it in terms of, um, look, profitability in the United States is starting to rev up again. Historically, what happens is investors start becoming comparative shoppers, right? If growth is scarce, you pay anything you can for growth. But if growth is becoming more and more abundant, you become a comparative shopper. I think that's what's starting to happen. So when you say bubble, this is not like a crash prediction. This is a case to be made for the other 493 stocks. Yeah, and, and right. more than that, I, I would say – Every other stock around the world, for all practical purposes. Okay. The uh, the equal weight S and P is uh, almost at a new all time high, at a fifty two week high today. So yeah, I'd like to see that. Yeah. Well, so well, what, so I wanted to ask you actually, if you think about that period from let's say the summer of ninety nine into March of two thousand. Okay. Um, <laughs> as they were, do I have to think about it? Well, <laughs> as they were putting the as they were putting the finishing touches on like a, a Nikkei esque yes. blow off top, right? Yes. Um, one of the things that was happening in parallel was that every other type of stock that wasn't internet related was mm -hmm. selling off. Yes. Which set up a huge opportunity Correct. for your style of investing. To Michael's point, if we're seeing simultaneous highs in the equal weight, mm -hmm. this is not the same setup as that. No, it's different. I would agree with that. Yeah. I, I, no, no, no. It's I, 
you know, there's similarities to 99-2000. I don't think it's identical at all, and I don't want to lead people to believe that we're saying it's the exact same thing. Rich, look at this chart. Sorry to cut you off, but this is the three-month rate of change for internet services. This is from Sentiment Trader. I mean, you could say that this is that things are elevated and extreme today, but mm-hmm. this is this is a baby compared to what this is the three-month rate of change for all internet stocks. But what are the dates? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, say. this is 1999. Oh, 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 yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and that's yeah, yeah. today. Right. Right. And that's what what's the group? I'm sorry. It's it's all cap internet. Okay. All cap internet. Okay. Um, yeah, no, it's not. I I I'm not making the argument that this is identical. I think that that there's an opportunity cost involved in this as there is in any bubble type scenario where you start misallocating capital and too much capital starts running towards a select group. Back then it was it was TMT, today it's the Magnificent Seven. Um, but I will, you know, at the at the risk of maybe stepping where we don't want to go, I don't know. But but my divining rod for speculation is Bitcoin. Okay. Because to me, it's the ultimate speculative instrument. There's there's absolutely nothing there. It's pure price. It's pure price. And yeah. and you know, people claim it's a currency, but there's never been a currency in history that hasn't served an economic purpose first and then was traded second. This would be a currency. Uh, Marlboro Miles. I'm sorry? Marlboro Miles. Marlboro Miles. Yeah. That was a currency in the in the nineties. <laughs> Marlboro what the hell? If you smoked enough Marlboros, you collected, you could get a, a kayak. I don't, all right, well, I, don't, I don't want to derail you. Well, Go Beanie on. Babies. Do you I mean, think sort of like so? So, Bit, I think Bitcoin Nasdaq is is some maybe a little bit correlated, but you think like that's like I, I really think, the? I think it's the same effect. Okay, I think what you're seeing is um, excess liquidity that's not getting mopped up in the economy, sopped up in the economy that is looking for a place to go, and naturally, what happens is it starts speculating. Yeah, and. Um, Bitcoin, I think, is a divining rod to figure out how much water there is running around. That's, okay. you know, That's how much liquidity is there. Well, it's at 52,000 yeah. today. It's a, to me, my argument is that, that that should tell the Fed that they haven't tightened enough. You think that should fact that should be in their uh, their basket of I, I don't observations? Think, I don't think it should. I think they should be <laughs> looking at it and wondering, like, what's going on here? Where is yeah. where's all the speculation coming from? And the reason that's important is because speculative activity, the misallocation of resources, is ultimately inflationary. Right. So they can constantly say, we don't care about the markets, we don't care about this and that. But if but if they're causing a misallocation of resources, inevitably that causes inflation. Let me throw a hypothetical at you. Sure. What would you say if the economy entered a recession and risk assets declined and Bitcoin went up? What would I say if that I I would say, wow. <laughs> that's what, in a nutshell, that's what I would. That's I actually what I would don't say. think that could possibly happen I, I don't because think the people with the highest propensity to sell Bitcoin would most likely be young people who have been laid off from their job and just yeah. need to use the cash on something more important. Yeah, I, that that would be. I mean, I, maybe that would be if that could happen. Maybe that would be. Kind it of seems a, unlikely. It's it un, seems it's un, not it mature enough. It seems unlikely. So but, but if it did happen. I think, you know, somebody like me would have to do an awful lot of thinking, rethinking about what's going on. What, what if we were to say that Bitcoin is not a currency? Mm-hmm. I agree with you there. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who's using it for a slice of pizza. Yeah. But it's an asset class. And we uh, we got four, we got a lot of ETFs. Four of them right. already have over a billion dollars. Yep. Are you more comfortable saying that? That Bitcoin uh, is not a currency? That's not what it is? Maybe that's I, its intended case, but that's not it? I it's just, an asset class? I, I think of it more as a collectible. And so collectibles are generally, some people think of them as an asset class, so whether it's art or something like that. I, I don't think that's what's spurring Bitcoin. I, I, I don't think. And yeah. because remember, it's not just Bitcoin. There's like, what, 7,000 
cryptocurrencies or something. There's more going on here. An ET, right. Um, An ETF is not a use case. No, so. it, it, it's just, it's providing a new avenue of growth for speculation. Yeah. There was, I would agree that for Bitcoin to, and just crypto more broadly, in mm -hmm. order for it to grow beyond an asset class and speculation, there needs to be a real use case, like a real, real use case other than just the asset class. So, right. Give, give, give it time. We're 16 years and counting. So, hold on. <laughs> Cit Citigroup actually put out a paper bringing traditional assets to digital networks. And they said, um, across financial services, there is a growing recognition that the use of distributed ledger technology presents a significant opportunity to re-architect capital markets. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think this is probably a pretty obvious use case for blockchains or financial services. Yeah, and I'm, I, I, no problem with that. I, I think, you know, technology, the financial markets have always been a center of technology, right? We, now we have a name for it, fintech and everything else, but, but that's always been true. And, you know, go back in the early days of markets, it was as simple as just getting the fastest runner. Yeah. Right, because people were actually so you like have a the, person. You have the run. fastest runner to do it. Yeah. Then now it's now it's who has the fastest computer, right? I mean, it's but it's the same principle, uh, the same economic principle. So, so I don't think the technology, or rather, I should say, the technology side, hundred percent. There's that. That's true. I don't think that has anything to do with Bitcoin being a fifty thousand dollars a coin. Uh, so the Bitcoin maxis would. Not that we want to do much more on this because I'd rather kill myself. The Bitcoin <laughs> maxis would say. It's a, it's a tautology. You can't say you believe in the blockchain, but not the price of Bitcoin rising because if the blockchain is truly transformational and functional, it has to be large enough to accommodate full-scale full size commerce. Therefore, there's only a limited number of Bitcoins. The price would have to be higher. So there, there is actually no way you can believe in the technology and not the price rising if you think of it from that prism, and I don't think of it at all, yeah. but I, I, I understand that. I, yeah. I understand that I, rationale. I would, I would um, disagree with that statement. But the other thing I think is that the scarcity argument, I think actually shows a lack of understanding of monetary theory. It's very broad. Everybody believes that because we're not printing Bitcoin, that therefore it's going to be more stable than most currencies and, and it won't inflate and everything else. I think that shows a lack of understanding of monetary theory and and um, uh, money multipliers and everything else. If if it's really going to become a dominant force in in the economy, then it will be lent, and you will create create in quotes Bitcoin just Fra as fractional reserve banking. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I, my argument was always well, if Bitcoin's great, here's Bitcoin too. Here's Bitcoin three. Well, yeah, well, exactly. If, it, if, we're, if we're all in on this for the technology, well, then more blockchains is better than less. Yeah. And so that's that's why I've always had an issue with the scarcity argument. Absolutely. But your point was not that. Uh, your point was for right now, pre-use case, we're in a situation where when you see Bitcoin rising, it's probably a pretty good signal that investors are excited again. Yeah. And I and, agree with that. And there's a chart that we have that shows financial conditions in Bitcoin and they go hand in hand. Is that right? Yeah. So okay. when financial conditions are easing, Bitcoin goes up. Financial conditions tighten, Bitcoin goes down. It, okay. It's pretty much speculation. Away from Bitcoin and the MAG7, yeah. there's this whole other category of stock. And I own a bunch of these and you do too. And we all – like when you do an eye test on your brokerage account these days, everyone has the, those four-letter tickers that are like, like NASDAQ-y kind of like mm -hmm. um, not mega caps but maybe large caps, software. Like what? CrowdStrike is Uber. a recent example. He's just, yeah, these are stocks that have doubled, tripled in the last year or so mm -hmm. off those lows. Uh, 
they're not Mag 7. Uh, they might not all necessarily be like in the bubble category, maybe, mm-hmm. or maybe they all are just like ripples of a bigger bubble. I don't, how do you think about that? So uh, let's separate out. I mean, there's always been growth investing and value investing, and, and we're kind of a little garpy, I would say, because we go back and forth between the two. So there's nothing wrong with growth investing and that that whole kind of stuff. I, I, I'm not sure that's exactly what's going on uh, in, in the markets today. It does seem to have a little bit of a speculative fervor to it. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, and, and uh, again, I don't want to name names, but a, a well-known um, – uh, individual investor. Exchange. Barry Redholtz. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> he doesn't care. <laughs> no, no. But the, um, the well-known individual investor brokerage firm that just reported this week yeah. um, had a blowout quarter. Yeah. Right? That tells you individual investors are are in. They're in big time. They're trading. Robinhood. Um, yeah. Yeah, you said it. Yeah, well, and, Robinhood and, is doing yeah. well. That means their their flock they're, came they're, back they're and they're transacting. Rich, and, just because super microcomputers up 300% of the last 48 hours doesn't mean that there's a speculative <laughs> fervor. <laughs> right. But but here's here's the way I think about it. My former employer, Merrill, who you were yeah. kind enough to mention before, Merrill keeps statistics on their entire private client system. Yeah. So millions of accounts. That's like Savita's research. That's yeah. What they well, it's at. actually Michael Hartnett. Oh, Michael Hartnett. Michael Hartnett yeah, puts yeah. this out. The fl- oh, the flow show. The flow show. Yeah. Right. And one of the charts in the flow show that he puts out is the Merrill Lynch private client beta of their portfolio. What's it at right now? So let's let's scale it appropriately. <laughs> okay. And at the beginning of the bull market, 2009, the beta of Merrill, of the entire Merrill Lynch system was 0. 0.75. <laughs> Okay. okay. People are under their desks. They're in the fetal position. They don't want equities. So looking at the entirety of their portfolios, they are they have less volatility than the S&P. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. Now it's a whopping 1.2. We okay. are so for back. The, for the entire system. Yeah, yeah, That means that- Is that good? <laughs> well, it means- um, Yeah. Some people are- Yeah. I mean, people are really bulled up. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, that's- it. That to but me But you know what's incredible. funny? You're, you're not wrong. People are definitely um, optimistic right now and enthusiastic, but the second we get anything coming, they freak out. Yeah. Exactly right. I said on TV yesterday about super micro computer. I I said, it sounds like a a fake company (laughs) that Christopher (laughs) Moltisanti made up and started pitching on The Sopranos. The Sopranos. Fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) Mr. Jones, the name of the company is Super Micro Computer. Yeah. We got – we got one hot print in uh, in CPI, and the VIX spiked up to eighteen. Right. The ten year ripped, and we're mostly giving it all back, or we're taking it all back. All yeah, volatility yeah, 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 is abated. So, so it's interesting you brought up the CPI. I think one of the ways that we differ from a lot of other people you may talk to is that our our uh, our feeling continues to be that the risk to inflation is on the upside, not the downside. Ooh, oh, that's interesting. And, You're out and, of consensus there. Yeah, yeah. I think we. I think we really. The rest are, of us are all yeah. arguing about March versus May. Right, you're like <laughs> actually. <laughs> so okay. so and and um, there's a the economy the economy itself is there's there's also a general conception that the economy itself is is weakening and weakening dramatically, but yet somehow the leading indicators of the economy are troughing, and I think that's you know what I try to point out not being I'm smart and they're dumb don't misunderstand the comment, but there's never been a time in my entire career where the consensus economic forecast has correctly forecasted a recession. Yeah. It's never 40 years, never yeah, happened. It's amazing. Right. And so what what we try to do is we look for gaps between perception and reality. So where a recession occurs is when the leading indicators start to fall over, but the economists say nothing's wrong. What's okay. happening now? Leading indicators are troughing and economists are talking about slowdown and or recession. 
that says there's room for positive surprises, right? I mean, the city surprise index is putting up its longest weekly streak of positive surprises outside of the pandemic, like in the history of the indicator. Do you feel like some of these indicators are just irreparably broken because of the the, the, the events of 2020 to 2022? We just had su- such distortion yeah. that they almost like, they don't tell you what they used to tell you. So or do you think they're normalizing? That's, I'm going to say something that I hate when people say it to me and they it's say it's different. Time. It's a great question. Yeah. Oh. No, I mean, because <laughs> no, I, I, like, what are all the other questions, right? Yeah. The other questions stink, but this is a great question. Yeah, I think there is, I, I think if you look at the volatility of economic indicators, it has gone up dramatically post yeah. 2000, yeah. or post 2020, rather, post the pandemic. It's gone up dramatically. That has ruined every economist's model. Yeah. Because they're not used to that. The models are broken. What about the The rate at which these things are now disagreeing with each other on a regular basis? They're not lining up. No, they're not. And so, how do you square retail sales with with unemployment? With like every day, you're getting an entirely different story. Absolutely. And and I think you know before I use the word leading indicator, and and I think that's really crucial right now um, because the Fed has always been a lagging indicator, but I think they're becoming a a lag, more lagging, lagging indicator because of what we were just talking about with the volatility. I think it makes them incredibly uncertain. They yeah. don't know oh, what to do. Yeah. And so they're like deer in the headlights. They're hoping for this, but then this, and so they're not doing anything. Data dependent forever. Forever. Yeah. No, no more proactive anything. No. Wait, so, Rich, so where do you think the inflation reacceleration is going to come from? So I think it's coming from uh, a number of different places. Inside one, the house? Super I'm micro sorry? computers. <laughs> that's, that's my leading indicator. Um, number one, um, uh, the labor markets are still pretty tight, right? I mean, we could talk about whether they're easing or whether they're still quite tight. And, and the easing that we've seen in the labor market happened during a profits recession. And that's normal, right? Profits go down, companies lay people off. Labor market eases, and all it eased to was like 3.7 or 3.8% unemployment yeah, rate. It eased. Now, right. profits are starting to rev up. But but wage it, growth has gone the right direction now. Wage, well, it'll it'll lag, but yes. It, my point is, is that what's going to start happening is we're going to see some of the, uh, as, as profits start revving up, you will start seeing hiring start picking up again. So I don't know, because the reason the profits are ramping up is more likely than not the ongoing waves of layoffs that never seem to end. And- if you just look at the last 20 earnings reports from this week, right? Like in 15 of them, it'll say something like such and such beats earnings. Yes. Announces another 5% workforce reduction. Absolutely. Announces new buyback. Absolutely. So why do we think there's going to be this reacceleration so, in hiring? Again, leading indicators. Look at jobless claims, okay. right? If people are getting laid off and they're not getting absorbed, we would see jobless claims rising pretty dramatically. It's not That's, happening. Yeah. It's yeah. not happening. It's so true. so if jobless claims start going up, yeah, I think we have to change the story pretty dramatically. Yeah. Um, but I think that's number one. Number two is that I think that um, companies are anticipating – it's being worked into their, into their corporate planning now, price increases. That was not done before. And you see this in like the NFIB small business survey. NFIB small business has what are your uh, pricing intentions over the next three yeah. months or six months, something like that. I can't remember that. Yeah. And that actually leads the CPI. Mm. And that troughed about four months ago, six months ago, something like that. And it started to head up. And sure enough, the CPI is now trough appears – the rate of change appears to be troughing. So there's all these little things that suggest that, that um, corporate behavior is changing. So how does that view influence how you construct portfolios in the stock market? So my argument is that, that um, if profits really are revving up, 
right? And if the cycle is revving up, as I described, this sounds stupid, I know, but the cycle is always affected by cyclicals, right? Okay. Stable companies are just that. They're stable that, companies. That doesn't sound stupid. They don't, they don't cause the cycle. So, yeah. so More semiconductors. <laughs> yeah, more semis. That's well, all. there's something, you know, outside of the high-flying couple of semiconductor companies, yeah, basic commodity semiconductors. Yeah, if you think that, you know, if people are going to buy more refrigerators, there's going to be more semiconductors in those refrigerators. If they're going to buy more cars, there's going to be semiconductors in the cars. That's not very sexy stuff, but yeah. but it is going to happen. Um, and uh, so, you know, we like things like energy and materials. Materials and look good. I have that on my screen right now. Yeah, materials are doing okay. I mean, industrials have been... Uh, but they sort of, never quite do it. But they're but they're, they're it's right there. I know, but they it never really but they never go. But maybe this time. Yeah. Maybe this That's time. Right. Yeah. But industrials have been a huge story. And yeah. it's like nobody talks about industrials. Yeah. Nah. And, no and AI. holy shit. I was always, <laughs> I always said no. this is the problem. Look, this looks like a SMCI. This is XLI. I didn't realize it was doing that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's my well, point. Well, there's a robotic story. There's an autonomous so there's, this, story. There's, there's no a, recession. There's a, there's this is not a recession. There are, there are automation stories exactly. in those stocks. Wow. Right. That's Battery technology. No and and I believe industrials are the most diverse sector in terms of there's no large nothing dominates. Um you do get you do get a couple of big you Cat, get a bunch of big companies, but in terms of the industry representation, yeah, that's what massively I mean. I, I had no idea it looked like that. Yeah, massively broad. Uh that's really bullish chart. The other bullish chart, and we can go here now. XLV. It, well, I was going to say international stocks going into going into uh, the start of this year. I know it's been six weeks already of 2024, but one of the coolest stories was at the end of 2023, Europe exploded. Japan yes. had been doing well all year. Other than China, pretty much every country stock market you could look at was trending higher. And I know the dollar maybe put a little bit of a cap on that short term, but uh, you think that's intact too, it seems like. I do. I think that, um, you know, we've described the stock market as a seesaw. Yeah. Right. One side of the seesaw, we have seven companies. Other side of the seesaw, we have everything else in the world. And, you know, I think everybody remembers 2022 is a bad year for the sexy side of the seesaw. It did yeah. really badly. What people are, don't realize is that something like 70 or 75 percent of non-U.S. markets outperformed the U.S. during that year, too. Yeah, but they outperformed by going down less. It wasn't fun. Well, we own all maybe, that shit. You maybe could, you could take my word for it. Maybe, okay. but but they still outperformed. Right? John, can and you do these? Uh, can you do these charts? Uh, or this chart, uh, PE ratios, showing Mag Seven versus the rest of the world. So I want I want to I want to dive into this. Yeah. Um, so, and and we're gonna segue into the lost decade comments that that you made mm -hmm. and. Uh, not a lot of investors who are listening to this maybe remember the lost decade. I do. Obviously, you do. Um, but that 2000 to 2009 period, a lot of investors don't realize the S&P didn't just go, quote, go nowhere. It went down. It had two 50% corrections and went nowhere. Yep. So you got the worst that, that the stock market gives you, volatility, and none of the upside. Correct. But you made money, a little bit of money in small caps and REITs, U.S., you made a lot of money in emerging markets for most of that period of time. Mm -hmm. You made money improbably in commodities, which nobody ever really seems to do. Like there were other things. Absolutely. Okay. From my perspective now, it's a really long time ago. I feel like it's impossible to envision a multi-year period where European and Asian stocks do well and the U.S. sucks. So, I know it can happen. Right. I'm just trying to, in my head, concoct the story as to how that goes on for more than eight months at okay. a time. So first, let's talk sentiment for a and, second. And here's valuations, as, the a, valuation. as a backdrop. Right, okay. exactly. 
So um, I think that the valuations are good, but I don't think that's new. No, like, it's, been like, it's been this way. Like Europe years. is cheap, yeah. right? I mean, there's yeah. like zero value added in saying Europe that. has been cheap and will be cheap. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, we agree. And I don't think we should. That's not the story. Okay. And I'm not sure Europe is the place. But if you think about historically, there is a remarkable inverse relationship by decade between venture capital and emerging markets. Okay. So if venture mm. capital works in a decade, emerging markets don't. Is that true? Yeah. Well, no, no, I just made it up. No, of course. Of course it's true. I mean, it may not be true to you what do you, know, what, do you think that's, what do you think that's about vaccines? I'm I'm not well, it, it goes back a long way. Okay. It's not new. Okay. You know, if you go back like uh, you know, I think eighties, nineties, zeros and now, you know, I mean, this is what you know, the last decade you see it back and forth and back and forth. So if you go through the lost decade where venture capital did really poorly. Emerging markets did really well. Think about what we've just gone through, a period where venture capital was like the be-all, the end-all. Everybody loves yeah, venture throw, capital. Throw a dart. Yeah. Everybody's like, you know, coming public, you know, all that kind of stuff. Emerging markets stunk, right? So just from a sentiment point of view, one could argue if that's going to continue, if that relationship continues, it might be a time to look at emerging markets instead of venture capital. Why that works, I can only guess at. I can't tell you that I have a very sound theory. I think it has to do with risk capital and where risk capital gets allocated in the global equity so markets. So funny, like right now, India is the hottest trade on Wall Street. Oh, yeah. Every hedge fund is in it. <laughs> like every, <laughs> that's, uh, that's, but you can't do an IPO if you, if you, you know, if you prayed to God, you couldn't get an IPO done right now. No. So it's actually happening it, in real time. It's starting to happen. Yeah. Right, it is right. starting. That's and so I think from, from that point of view, maybe there's, there's uh, that to go on. The other thing is that um, – you know, I grew up in a world where people used to look at relative price and relative earnings and all these kind of things. And the relative earnings have favored the United States for quite some time. That's starting to change. Okay. Right? If you look at things like the percentage of companies reporting negative surprises and all those kind of things, go back over the last 10 years, emerging markets were basically leading the world in negative earnings surprises. Yeah. made sense that the stocks st sucked, right? But, but that's starting to change. And if that does change, um, I think you'll start seeing positive surprises. You'll start seeing uh, the stocks do a lot better. So how do you express that view in a portfolio context? Do you say normally emerging markets would be 5% of our portfolio, but given these dynamics, we're going to cheat and overweight them and they'll be 8%? Like is that yeah. – that's the way you would express that. Yeah, for that. us. For us as a long-only manager. Yeah, a non-hedge yeah, fund. Correct. A non that's okay. basically what we have to do. So emerging okay. markets are – what are they, like 13% of the global market? Something like that. I may be off by a decimal point on that, but you get the – whatever it is. And so we have, I don't know, 15 16% emerging, something like that. How, but how does deglobalization factor into all of this? Uh, well, I, I actually think that is the long-term story. I we don't, actually prefer to call it friend-shoring. Friend-shoring. <laughs> yes. We'll talk, okay. we'll talk about it in well, a second. But anyhow, but, but, but I think that's the real story, the long-term growth story. I don't think it's AI because what we spoke about before – you know, in terms of the economic story versus the investment story, I think deglobalization, globalization, contracting, friendshoring, reshoring, <laughs> infrastructure. Well, friendshoring is stuff we used to get from China. We're going to get from Vietnam. Stuff we used to get from Russia. We're going to get from uh, Mexico. That's that's we all. Got, we got stuff from Russia. Uh, well, yeah, commodities. <laughs> no, 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 we like, like the free yes. world. No, 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 of course. So friendshoring is like yeah. kind of like a shorthand for. It's not that it'll all come back to the United States. It's right. that we're going to move supply chains around. Right. Okay, but that's right. that's it's fine. But story. here's but here's here's the point that that I want to make. What I would argue that globalization was the number one reason, not the sole reason, but the number one reason we had secular disinflation. 
Yeah, NAFTA. We started in 1992 with NAFTA, right. and just and because what we kept doing was expanding and opening markets, and importantly, increasing competition. Yeah. And when you increase competition, you get downward pressure on prices, right? And so what happened was the production went to where it was most efficient. Unfortunately, that was not in the United mm -hmm. States. And so the end result was that we now run a massive trade deficit, which people have argued about for decades. It doesn't make any difference because as long as we were opening more and more markets, we're getting better and better quality goods for cheaper and cheaper prices. Who cares, right? Well, now globalization is starting to contract. And when you're dependent on the rest of the world for everything and globalization is contracting, that's kind of inflationary. Yeah. So even if we start friendshoring or reshoring or whatever, we're going to less productive centers as we go to less productive centers, you start getting more inflation pressures rather than So that less. would argue that would argue for higher for longer, maybe not Correct. necessarily rate hikes, but like uh, you know, not a lot of cutting. Yeah. Uh, I mean the, the green spans of the world were able to repeatedly cut and save the financial markets, the whole green span put, the Fed put type notion. They could do that because of this globalization. Because of globalization is exerting yeah. this massive deflationary but what force. If, but what if the counterbalance to that reshoring in inflationary impulse is AI? Because yes, yes, it costs more if NVIDIA is going to, if Taiwan Semi is going to start making GPUs in, in Arizona instead of, uh, instead of the Far East. Yeah, that'll cost more money. However, they can do it with less employees or they can do their R&D process in a, at a lower cost. I don't know. I think it helps. Okay. Oh, yeah, it does help, but I don't think it alleviates the situation. Not enough. Yeah, it's not enough. Oh, like, uh, automation, robotics, yeah, none of these. Yeah, you know, robotics have been, that story's been around for a long time. Okay. I mean, when I was at E.F. Hutton, for those of you who remember E.F. Hutton, that yeah. was the story way back then for a company called- They had the best commercials. Cincinnati Millicron was supposed to be the big robotics play. Right. And they were bigger than Walmart back then. So the market cap was bigger than Walmart, which is crazy. What yeah. sectors or industries would be the biggest win winners or losers? So I think, getting out. back to what we were talking about before, I think industrials are right at the heart of that. I think, um, you know, there's nothing sexy about this. We're talking about things like wire companies and cable companies and, you know, construction companies. I mean, there's nothing sexy about this at all. But if you are, um, if the, uh, my goal, my, my utter conclusion is that the United States economy is going to have to become more self-sufficient. And if you think that's true, you could call it reindustrialization, you could call it infrastructure, call it anything you want, that's going to have to happen. Now, we could argue to what extent that happens. That would be the, the friend-shoring you know, versus reshoring type stuff, and I get that. But on the margin, I think the U.S. economy is going to have to become more self-sufficient. That's great for the industrial I was going to say, but that doesn't sound like a negative story for investing. It just may sound like a story that would keep rates higher and maybe would somewhat pressure profit margins but help revenue. Yeah, oh, I don't. I, I, I'm very bullish about this yeah, theme. Yeah. I think this is the long-term theme that people are, are kind of okay. missing. Wouldn't that be a great world to live in, where we have more normal rates, where fixed-income investors can earn a return, where it's not just the Mag Seven keeping the market high? Wouldn't that be like preferable than what we've experienced? Yes, absolutely. Well, it's broadening of the market. Is right. what we're basically arguing for. Oh yeah, I think that's. I think that's much healthier than where we are right now with you know seven or ten or twenty stocks leading the market. Uh, can we talk about like uh, politics versus fundamentals sure. and just uh, where you think things stand with the U.S. economy and how big of a threat the political situation is to what I think most people would argue right now is a, a pretty good economy with maybe mm -hmm. some high restaurant and healthcare costs right. thrown in the mix. But like overall, right. like from my perspective, like people are working. Yeah. They're, they're not, you know, it's not, it's not like a methamphetamine post GFC <laughs> nightmare. <laughs> 
with with eight percent unemployment <laughs> right. and young no. young men playing video games. Like this is not that. No, not at all. So we like the situation. Of course, there's room for it to improve. Well, we made it through. We made it through the rate hiking cycle. Okay. So all right, fine. But so now what? Like that's. That's the that's the the big question, <laughs> right? Isn't it always yeah? But so now what? Yeah. We did well, that, but so now what? Well, that's what we do. <laughs> okay. So how does politics influence all yeah, this? Yeah, okay. and because that's going to be the next thing. Like you could already Super Tuesday, right? And then they'll have the convention, yep. and then it's like we're right back in twenty twenty okay. again. So let me give you my line that I always give before I start talking politics, and that is make America. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so, I didn't so, know you were a MAGA guy, uh, but, well. Let's not go there. But, oh, we're going um, to let people email you later and they yeah, can uh, – Exactly. <laughs> All right, um, politics is about what should be, right? It's always been true. Think about Herbert Hoover in the 1930s, a chicken in every pot. Yeah. I always thought that was the best campaign slogan I've ever heard, a chicken in every pot. But that was his campaign slogan, yeah. chicken in every pot, car in every garage, about what should be. Investing is about what is. And so as an investor, you have to separate that out. You're going to, we're going to hear a lot of noise, as you point out, Josh, over the next um, you know, six months, nine months, whatever it is. Ugh. As an investor, you're going to have to like put on your blinders. You know, you I gotta, think, you I gotta think be, investors are pretty good at that. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I, I'm not sure everybody is, but I, but I get that. Okay, so that's number one. Number two is that not just in the United States, but around the world, there are nationalistic movements that are growing. Right, we all know this. This is part of the reason why we have to deglobalize. Exactly. Yeah, and that's all related. And so I think it's really. So I think if you are a nationalist, I'm not passing judgment. Right, maybe good, maybe bad. But if you're a nationalist, you have to think there's going to be more inflation rather than less. You have to think there's going to be higher interest rates and lower interest rates because you're effectively going to say we're going to reduce competition around the world. We're not going to let people into these markets. And and I don't think that's something that people have thought about completely. So in hindsight, the 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 Cold War was not negative for the stock market uh, for for the most part. We had mm -hmm. economic cycles Absolutely. up and down. We Absolutely, had, the 70s were bad, the 60s were good, the 80s were good. So yeah, yeah, I think people are okay. I think people are okay at that part of it. I think it's the more acute thing of I don't want to you know I don't I don't want to take any risk ahead of the election next week right, like right. that kind of so thing. So here's the other thing that I point out to people is that whatever party loses the election the presidential election members of that party will say that the stock market is doomed. Well, of course. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right? Yeah. This has happened throughout my entire career. Somehow we had bull markets under every, I think every I think president. every president. Yeah. Right? And and so you know we should all kind of Chill, chill out. You think politics are the biggest distraction to investing? Yeah, I think. I, you know, I had a boss many, many years ago who said that um, politicians always want to be the star of the show. It's a shame that investors watch that show. Yeah, you know that they'll, if allowed to, they will dominate. Although you would, discussion. although you, although you would stipulate, we had a massive rally from uh, sixteen into 2017, S and P did thirty percent. Yeah. And the Straight reason up. the reason was the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, Trump's tax cut, yeah. was massively favorable to the investor class and to corporations. And so it's not all noise. There's there's signal no, too. No, no, no. But, but and that's my the point hard simply, part. My point simply is is that there's basic economics. Forget the politics for a second, right? Yeah. There's basic economics. If you're stimulating the economy, the odds are the stock market's going up. Yeah. Right. We could then argue about how we're stimulating the economy, who's right. benefiting, and what are the appropriate stocks to take advantage of that. But 
you know, if you're if fiscal policy is stimulative, the odds are the market's going up. So you don't worry so much about who's going to win. What does it mean on a policy from a policy standpoint? Because that's almost like more like trader talk than it yeah. is allocator talk. I, I think that's right. I think yeah. um, you know, there's certain as as we get through the next six to nine months. Um, there'll be more things that'll become evident. And I think certain sectors will begin to respond to that. And certain industries will start to respond to that. But right now, I think it's mostly noise. Rich, you said that investing is about what is or what it exactly did yeah, you say? Yeah, Poli- politics is about what should be. Investing is about what is. Okay. And investing is also about what is versus what people think mm-hmm. would have happened. So we had this really uh, interesting scenario for the last couple of years, certainly 22 leading into 23, where everybody that you spoke to, individual investor, economist, hedge fund manager, asset long, whatever it was, recession. They all thought that was a recession, that a recession was coming. We're now in the opposite situ- situation. Bank of America does this uh, fund manager survey yeah, expectations, right. and that is just totally crashing. Does, does the reverse worry you at all? That nobody is because I guess when you're bracing so, when so, you, so this is show this is showing um the net percentage of people in this survey, according to B of A, who are saying recession is likely in the next 12 months. Right. And but it's and it's now a negative number. It was a, a positive number from 22 up until I don't know, two months ago. What I would yeah. say is that when everybody everybody is expecting a recession. That changes the dynamics of the economy because everyone braces for impact. They prepare, and that can in some ways help to to prevent the recession. When everybody is not expecting a recession, it's not as if if companies are acting irresponsibly now and levering up Mm -hmm. or anything like that. No. The basic company is not. No way. No way. Um, I mean, and and you can see that in your chart here. If you look at from, what, 13 to 18? Yeah. And that wasn't. That was a pretty good period in in the market. Yeah, I would argue so, it was one of the better five year stretches. Yeah, yeah. We were so we had just made a new all time high in thirteen, and then up until the trade war, like other than the election, there wasn't really a lot of noisy stuff to worry about right. in that stretch. Yep, exactly. You had earnings but, but growth. Interesting in this chart that what we were talking about before the volatility and economic statistics. Yeah, look at the look at twenty twenty on or. And how it's bouncing up and down and up and down. It's so much more extreme, isn't it? It's yeah. just ridiculous. Yeah. And and I think that, that reflects here to some that here of what we stay? were talking about before. You know, a lot of people are pining for a lot of our listeners, maybe who are let's say in their forties, fifties, right about now. Let's I guess we'll talk about the Gen Xers. Mm-hmm. They might be pining for this period of time that they sort of remember from their childhoods. I, I promise, I'm not just speaking autobiographically. <laughs> But a, a time in the 80s, the 90s where – They were 100 pounds lighter. Well, <laughs> certainly at least. Uh, but where it was like normal times. That's how we remember them now. Right. I know they weren't. Right. Um, but like it, are these extremes are just like with us like the weather? Like is it just like this is the new normal and there – there's no going back to the 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 pre you know the the age of innocence I, that we all remember that period of time. I think we will return to an age of some sort of innocence. I'm not sure it'll be the exact same thing that we saw then. Of course. But it's going to take a while. Yeah. And the reason I say that is that um, you know money growth. Forgetting fiscal policy for a second, let's just forget that because that's obviously a political monkey wrench. But um, monetary policy, you know, post pandemic. Uh, it's clear that the Fed sort of panicked and we had 27% M2 growth, the highest in modern U.S. history, rivaled us with Peru. It was a beautiful was, panic, though. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. But but rivaled us with Peru. I mean, is that yeah. something we should be proud of? And yeah. and I think, you know, 
Economists like to talk about what do they call them? variable lags of monetary policy, unpredictable variable lags of monetary, whatever they, they yeah. say. I think they're going to be more unpredictable and more variable. The than, lags. The lags than anybody could have imagined. Because Why? 27% money growth. Okay. It takes a long time to wash out 27% money growth. Such a great point. And it shows up yeah. everywhere. Valuations. Yeah. Consumer uh, behavior. Yeah. Like just it's it seems like it seems it seems endless. I know it's not. Nothing yeah. is. But and and you look at like I said before, you look at the Bloomberg or the Goldman Sachs financial conditions indices. They're not showing an awful lot of tightness, given that the Fed raised rates five hundred twenty-five basis points. Yeah. Right. That makes no sense. Every model says you. It's raised- almost as if they did a quarter of a basis point. Yeah. Like if you try to measure, I I actually think financial conditions are loosening this year. They are. Right. So it's almost as if they did nothing. Yeah. I know that's not true in reality, but. Yeah. But I mean, but if you think about, um, you know, what we're seeing, and I'm not dissing these asset classes at all. Don't misunderstand the point. But, you know, private debt is still doing what they're doing. Um, you're still, you know, uh, so, credit spreads are still so remarkably narrow. I was asking somebody, like, who is who is in the real economy screaming out for interest rate cuts? I don't other than Barry Sternlich at Starwood Lodging, I don't know anyone that's going on TV yeah. and being like, get us these rate cuts. Yeah. It's amazing. And I never would have guessed that this would be the way it is. Incredible. But we're like weathering it just and that's fine. That's my point. That's my point yeah. is that there's so much liquidity rippling through the system that it's making up for that. And I think it's going to take a while for that 27% to get – to get washed out. That's a bad word to use. What 27%? The 20% money growth, M2 growth, right? To get that 27% M2 growth to be negated through time. Uh, It's going to take a long time. Do you worry about things like the debt maturity uh, cliff coming for for, uh, corporates that are going to have to uh, refinance at higher rates, that reset? Do you worry about CRE? Like these seem to be the, the, the big scary things right now. And- for as many people as you can find with an extremely negative opinion on them, you can find an equal number of experts who would say, dude, you're worried about something crashing that I'm already raising an opportunity fund to capitalize on. <laughs> exactly. Like, if, there you like go. if Goldman Sachs is raising a commercial real estate opportunity fund, it's going to be really hard to get a, a panic going there. Exactly. Okay. That's so, exactly so the worry point. About but also, what are those, those bonds are trading. I'm making up 40 cents on the dollar. We know. Right. right. Well, what's going to happen is that the – you know, commercial real estate is uh, asking for lower rates because they want to save their own businesses. Yeah. It doesn't mean – it means that those businesses may have trouble. The banks that have lent to them or the entities that have lent to them may have some write-offs that are going to happen. But it's not like the economy is going to crash because there's going to be somebody waiting to catch this thing. It's, there's, a, there's a story in the journal a couple of days ago about this kid. I say kid. He's like a year younger than me. He comes from a storied Canadian real estate dynasty. Right. He interned for Warren Buffett famously when he was in his 20s. He offered to pay Buffett for the internship. <laughs> and I guess Buffett said, oh, shucks, come on, come on I'll let you do it. Uh, anyway, he's raising, I think it said $600 million from among other wealthy families to buy up all of San Francisco. Yeah. So if that's where we already, if that's where the mentality yeah. already is. Next. It's almost like, how are you going to get a crash here if we're already rescuing it? That's exactly okay. my point. 27% money growth is going to take a while that. to get through that. Okay. I'm glad to hear you reinforce that. You have some uh, China-US stuff. Um, John, can we go there? What, are, what do you do with China as an investor? So, Second largest economy in the world. Worst stock market I've ever seen in my life. Like, what are, what are, so, what are we to make of this situation? Okay. So 
you know, I'm, I'm sure everybody comes on your show and they say all the things they did right. Here's something we didn't get too right. We're very early in China, very early in China. And so people say, well, why, why were you there? And the answer was because our- The our, food. The food. <laughs> no, I don't know. Okay, say what you're going to say. Chinese food here is very different from no, Chinese true, food in China. Um, but- um, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I lost my train of thought. But um, Szechuan, um, why were you, why, why why we you in China in, early? Right. right. And the, the answer was the fundamentals were actually starting to improve. And we're fundamentally based and everything else. And uh, and talk about politics now, politics and influence. I think this is, a, this is an example where politics really did influence investor behavior. Because if you look on those charts, what we're trying to show you is earnings growth, real GDP growth, uh, leading indicators – and industrial production, China versus the United States. And in, I think it's every one, China's as strong, if not stronger, than the United if States. If you were right? to say which which label is which country, you would have gotten each of these backwards. Yeah, exactly. So you're telling me that China's GDP is still significantly growing yeah. faster? So than what us? happens is that people look at it, and I may not have this exactly right if there's some detail-oriented Chinese economist out there. They're probably going to send you a note saying he doesn't know what he's talking about. I get that. But, but a lot of economists look at Chinese growth and they don't realize that some of the numbers aren't annualized. <laughs> and so, Wait, what do you mean? So everybody says China's economy is growing at 1%. Yeah. That's because on a quarter it grew 1%, but they don't annualize that number. Oh, that's a sequential growth number? Yeah, yeah but it's not annualized. Rich, isn't the, uh, keep that chart on. Isn't really the problem here is that you're showing me everything but uh, – you're showing me everything but – uh, earnings and and stock multiples, well, and that the reality is investors can't buy Chinese industrial production; they can only buy well, stocks. Upper left corner is so is what is earnings, growth. earnings growth for the Chinese stock yeah. market. Okay, so that looks pretty good. Yeah, it does. That's but my you point. can't buy earnings growth; you have to buy the stock. Well, that's the problem, and that's that's, that's my the point. That's, that's the crux that's of exactly, the issue. Yeah. That's, okay. So we're fundamental investors, macro fundamental investors. The macro fundamentals were basically saying you should invest in China. The fundamentals have come through. But yet the stock market sucks. It's the legal structure that's the problem. Well, but realistically, I mean, for, an, for a U.S. investor investing in a Chinese ETF, well, many of which we own, I, yeah. well, I should disclose, it, the legal issues are not that big a deal. You can get in and out. Maybe I didn't mean legal. Maybe I meant, maybe I meant political. The treatment of foreign investors and I, I don't want to say disdain, but just the, the lack of interest that China currently – seems to show toward whether or not foreign flows will ever improve. Like they just – Oh, I think that's They fair. almost seem to not care at all I, I think that's fair. But but I think you could – you, But do you remember even 10 years ago, there was this really intense lobbying effort to get MSCI to raise the amount of China in their yes. international indices? Absolutely. And this was a really big story. And they took China – from like a 2% weighting yeah. in emerging markets to, I want to say 15 or 20. No, no, no. It's not. Oh, in emerging markets. In emerging yeah, markets, not in EFA. Yeah, no, that's right. That's it, right. It went high. And that had to be done really judiciously. Mm -hmm. The Chinese authorities had to play along mm -hmm. with MSCI and they had meetings and there were press audits. releases, audits. And then they got it and they were like, you know, whatever. We do what we want here. Yeah. It was the weirdest thing, it and is. it almost seems like there was an about face on just the whole concept of do we care if there's foreign flows into or out of this market? Um, they were lobbying to try to get the the renminbi to be like a, a shadow reserve currency. Absolutely, they don't seem to care about that either anymore. Yeah. I think so what, I, I what think, is that? I think they're actually they're nihilists, dude. I think if you um, if you look at some of the policies they're putting into place right now, I think they appreciate. If they didn't before, they certainly appreciate now.
the problems uh, or the need for foreign capital at a time where some of the- changing? I think it's changing. And these stocks are all screaming buys. That's my argument. Because if that really is changing, you don't have to be a China bull. You just have to be not completely pitch black pessimistic on China. Correct. Okay. Richard, is most of what you're doing at RBA ETFs or are you picking individual stocks as well? So we we don't, even when we have, we do have portfolios mostly for institutional investors and we have a couple of mutual funds we sub-advise for uh, Eaton Vance, actually Morgan Stanley now, not Eaton Vance, but, um, and in those we use baskets of stocks. So it's sort of like we're forming our own ETF so we can get a little more precise in in doing that. Um, In our separately managed accounts, it's all ETFs. All right. So on the individual stocks that I'd be curious to hear your take, David Einhorn was on Barry Bidholz's podcast talking about how markets are broken because indices and not enough, not enough, not enough, excuse me, analyst coverage and a lack of value and price discovery and all that sort of thing. Do you, do you share that take or are you finding that value is actually accruing to fundamentals? So, So let me share something. When I started in the industry, 1980, whatever it was, 79, 80, 81, senior analysts, followed small cap stocks and junior analysts followed large cap stocks because it was a major- Wait, wait, say that, say that one more time. Senior, senior analysts, analysts followed, followed small caps. Ooh, that's, and, that's backwards the way I would have thought it would be. Yeah, exactly. Well, today that's, of course, like yeah. the junior people follow these little tiny little companies right. that nobody cares about. And I think that's Einhorn's point is that there's, you don't have good coverage. There's not adequate coverage. Back then, there was a major bull market going on in small cap stocks through the through the mid 70s all the way to like 83, I think, somewhere there. And so it was very sexy to be a small cap analyst. Okay. okay. Now that's like completely different. And that supports Einhorn's comment. That, can I tell you why that happened? Or do you know? Well, you can you can tell me. But what do you think? Uh, why it changed? I have, a re- I have a really strong story for why that, that happened. Um, I, I have to be careful what I say because my former employer, I will guess. They don't, nobody cares. Everyone's I, dead. I, I will guess. You can say, that you can has, say all the things. Um, that it uh, is related to investment banking. Oh, look at you. Yeah, yeah you know. <laughs> so, so there used to be a very healthy, baked-in vested interest in writing research on small caps. Yeah. And that vested interest was based on market making, yep. which was an amazing business pre-decimalization. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so you can get a quarter, you can get an eighth to a quarter on a listed small cap stock just buying and selling it for clients. Absolutely. How do you get clients to want to buy and sell a small cap stock with you? Yeah, tell a story. And pay you that quarter, you have to have upgrade, downgrade. Um, so that's one business. Business two, not only are we writing research and getting that market maker, now we're also going to do secondaries, pipes, uh, shelf offerings. Mm-hmm. We're going to do debt financing. So now you have a whole investment banking uh, complex tied to writing that research. All of those things were either legislated out or decimalized away. And now what is the f-ing purpose of covering a $300 million stock? What right. are you going to do with that? Yeah. Like what What value will anyone derive from it? Right. So you could post on Seeking Alpha. So <laughs> that, I mean, that now- I would not argue, go so far as to say decimalization is negative for investors no. because we know it ended up with free commission trading and mm-hmm. um, better bid ask spreads. But this is one of the, the consequences. Absolutely. I think the real question for you, though, is like from an, from an Einhorn view, why is that bad? Oh, I think it's actually quite good. Right. I mean, I'm not a stock picker. I mean, we're a macro firm. Of course. But if you're a stock picker. Yeah, no competition, no analysts. Exactly. Right. You His won. point is not that, though. His point is, what if I recognize value in 2024? But nobody else does. 
And then I, it's 2034 and nobody's picked up on how cheap mm. this stock has been. Yeah. That seems entirely valid. But that's almost like a Schrodinger's cat argument. Like, do we know the cat's dead or alive? We have to open the box to find out. Like, you, you just, you've discovered value, but it's a company that makes dresses. And nobody gives a shit about dressmakers. Yeah, you could say this company's trading at six times right. earnings and they're growing right. at mid to high single digits. But if nobody cares about it, it's not going to get re-rated right. higher. Well then, but then what, what, I mean, if you're, if you own substantial amount of that company, you should be trying to- Private work, equity. Private equity that's and everybody it. else to start consolidating the yeah. industry. Yeah. I mean, that's what really should be happening. Yeah, yeah. I think he has a point. I just don't know that I would reach the same conclusion from that point. Uh for that reason, it's not yeah. like there are no exits for public market no. companies that are get, getting no attention. No. And I think, uh, you know, I think that uh, in certain industries, I would argue private equity is just beginning. Yeah. You know, if you think about some of the industries we're talking about before, you know, small mid-cap industrial companies, things like that. Yeah. I think this whole story is just beginning. Yeah. All right. So maybe he'll be in a better mood a couple, a couple, <laughs> couple of years. Uh, I wanted to ask you career-wise, you, so you've built a very successful firm. When, when did you guys launch the firm? 09? 09. Okay. So it's, uh, it's, been, it's been a while. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what, like, what, what do you think is the biggest growth driver for what you're doing? Is it like asset management for, as a third party for other advisors or is it like directly with, with right. family offices? Like where – where are you putting your your energy in the coming year to, so, to build what you do? So I think um, our biggest engine of growth has been the financial advisors are no longer really compensated and can't, can't differentiate themselves by saying we're going to move 5% from growth to value. Yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. Like, yeah. And so so they're compensated in doing uh, the really difficult things, whether that's estate planning, all that kind of stuff. Um, real life stuff with the clients. Real life stuff. And yeah. they're they're compensated for for honestly raising assets, getting getting more assets in. So what they've done is they've turned over the basic core stuff to a firm like us, Yep. right? We're dirt cheap. We don't charge an arm and a leg. We don't lock people up. We don't do anything like that. It's just really cheap stuff. And so we do those decisions about growth and value, large and small, U.S., non-U.S., stocks, bonds, cash, all that stuff. And we do that uh, for financial advisors so that they don't have to. Yeah. And they know that we're not going to take them over the waterfall. We're not yeah. a high risk firm, nothing like that. And well, that's so, well, that's key because in the end, they have to answer for what the asset manager they select does with the portfolio. Exactly. So that's really key that there's that trust there. Yeah, uh, exactly. Okay. Exactly. So you see that you see that as being like the driver going forward. That's a, I, that's that's been the bread and butter of our business for for quite a long time. I think now what we're starting to do is we're starting to get interest from outside the United States. I, I think financial advisors in Europe are starting to pay attention to us a little bit, and because uh, we had no name brand recognition, and uh, we Europe's a weird uh, wealth market. It is, it yeah. is, and we partnered with a French firm that that uh, has taken a minority stake in our firm that that understands that market. So we're starting to get some interest there, and and things like that. I think um, you know we've also uh, on the institutional side, you know, pensions, endowments, and foundations. Uh, have it took a long time. They're finally starting to warm up to ETFs and the active management of ETFs. Yeah. Um, I, I don't quite know why they've been so hesitant, but they have been. And you were very early to ETFs relative to people coming out of the wirehouse world. The wirehouses did not like ETFs, not at all. did not include them on their platforms, actively were biased against their even existing. Yeah. Uh, you embraced ETFs 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you talk to... People that are now talking about 
like direct and custom indexing? Do you hear a lot of that stuff? Yeah, we do. I mean, that's not something that we do, but but yeah. we do hear that. And and of course, that's uh, you know, look, if you can get a little extra by tax alpha or something like that, why not? I mean, yeah. you know. Absolutely. Well, I want to tell you that it's been an absolute honor and pleasure to have you here. Really appreciate well, thanks. it. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, can we do some Rangers and Jet stuff? Sure. Okay. Fire why? Away. Okay. I get the Rangers thing. Why in God's name are you a Jets fan? Tell tell <laughs> tell, tell tell us what you're getting out of it. I know what they get it's, out of it. What I, are you I, getting I, out of this what association? I, get, I, I enjoy self-flagellation. That's you know I can't Apparently. stop can't stop hitting myself. And hitting. I know you can't really change what you it's, are. I know. Yeah. It's. Okay. Um, uh, I'm a Knicks it, fan, so it's, it's yeah, okay. Yeah, well, uh, me too. I didn't put that on the thing, but yeah, I've been a Knicks fan. I remember when the Knicks were actually really good, 69, 70, 72. I thought you were going to say 96. Oh, yeah. No, that's <laughs> difference in age between the two yeah, of yeah, us, yeah. yeah. Um, Do you like this team better than any team you've seen since the 90s? Absolutely. Not just because of their well, record they can this stay season. Healthy, if they can stay healthy. But don't you, like, right. love the guys? Oh, absolutely. I love these guys. I have to admit, I was upset when IQ got traded. Yeah, me I too. I loved IQ, but— as long as these guys can stay healthy, they're probably going to be a pretty good team. RJ was so bad. I hated him. I mean, I liked yeah. personally. I have nothing against yeah, yeah, him, but yeah, yeah. as a player, I couldn't stand him. Yeah. He's, yeah, sweet, sweet kid. You rooted for him, but after four years, it's yeah. five. This is five years, yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, what, do you think for, what do you think for the Jets? Are we at rock bottom? With Aaron, Aaron Jones doing podcasts instead of quarterbacking this season. Like, could, it, could it possibly go lower? Uh, I don't know. Do you mean Rodgers? Rodgers. Uh, uh, right, right. Aaron Rodgers. Um, my my fear is that well my I was my friends and I were all season ticket holders right yeah my over under for Aaron Rodgers this year was four games it turned out to be four plays four plays yeah I thought they were good hurt. though he, they were great they were four amazing. plays wasn't <laughs> it but like wasn't it such you know what made it worse uh, Hard Knocks was so oh, good was it was fantastic and America like fell in love with Aaron Rodgers again and. And I've or, never been. I've never been in the stadium that was rocking, and on the fourth play, the oh, air you just you got. Were there that day? Su- I was there. As the a, air got sucked out of the stadium. It was an amazing thing to see. So as bad. a value investor, you had to be nervous going to the season. The over under was ten and a half games I know. or nine and a half. Yeah, yeah, I was. And and as I said, uh, my over under for Aaron Rodgers was four games, <laughs> and I knew they had no backup. Yeah. So I was trying very hard not to get caught up in the enthusiasm. It was really the hard. Coach not survived, to. right? They didn't fire him. I can't believe that he's coming back. He's coming it's back. Unbelievable. Who's that? I'm sorry. Uh, Salah. Salah. Oh, Salah. But the offensive coordinator. I mean, you have like the worst offense in did like Zach the history. Wilson, did of the Zach NFL. Wilson? Did Zach Wilson get a really raw deal? No, he stinks. He what, can't play. Oh, what if he were just like an apprentice quarterback for his first three years instead of like pushed no, out into rookie, the field? Rookie QBs start these days. It's uh, not. It's not always. Not, no, they do. They do. Mahomes didn't. I mean, well, no. Now they start. Now they start. Look at the. The Titans, right? They all start. Yeah. I mean, they have they have some good they have some good quarterbacks out there, but um, I just think um, you know it hurts it hurt this year to um, watch Lamar Jackson be so successful when the Jets have passed on him twice. Yeah, twice they passed. That's him. one of those teams that oh. should be sold. Maybe like Woody should just Who, the Jets. Yeah. Oh, the, I mean, it never will. It, but every time. Woody John. Now, hopefully, Woody Johnson isn't like the Dolans. And when I say something bad, he's going to like revoke my season. Oh ticket, no, no, no! We love Dolan now. Now, okay. now, we're, I know. now we love. No, him. the Dolans are great. Yeah, yeah. But, the best. Um, <laughs> but um, Mike's um, a season ticket holder. So. Woody Woody Johnson. Um, every time he posts on Twitter, if you look at the comments, everybody says, "Sell the team, sell the team, yeah. sell the team, sell the team." Yeah. It's 
I I really wish he would. All right. So you're so you're successful at investing, unsuccessful at football fandom. That's okay. Everybody's yeah. got their everybody's got but their. At least the losses. owner of the Jets, you could say what you want. It's not a, it's not communist China. That's true. But he'll still let you into the stadium. That's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Uh, we always end the show by doing favorites. We kind of like to give the audience maybe something that you're interested in these days, whether it's a book mm-hmm. or a movie or a podcast or a TV show, whatever whatever's on your mind. What do you think our audience should check out? So, um, great book written by a classmate of mine at Hamilton, um, who's actually a pretty famous writer, um, and uh, it's called The Last Green Valley okay. by Mark Sullivan. Okay. Uh, he's written with James Patterson in the past and things like that. Oh, wow. I don't want to make it sound like we were buddies in college. We weren't. I don't think I said two words to him, but he happened to go to Hamilton, as did I. And um, it's a great book about uh, refugees in World War II through Europe. And what happened with the fall of Nazism and the invasion of of uh, Stalin's Russia into Eastern Europe and great book. Is it yeah. fiction? Um, it's kind of historical fiction. Yeah. You know, like it's based on it's based on a real right. family. It's based on real events, but the story is. I read a lot of I read a lot of those types of books. It's a great. Book. I find that's a more palatable way to read history yeah, or a more exactly. page turning way. Exactly. So I love that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Do you read a lot of novels? Do you read a lot of history? What? Do- um, actually, right now I'm. Reading a book I read like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, The Little Drummer Girl, you know, by what, John no. Le Carre. What is that? Is it's that, uh, uh, Oh, John Le Carre. John a, Le Carre. The, it's a spy book. Yeah. yeah. And um, it's about a woman who um, basically gets um, recruited by the Mossad. Okay. Uh, a, an English woman who gets recruited by the Mossad. Um, I don't want to say too much because then it'll spoil the whole story, but it's, it's kind of cool. It's a very, cool story. Very good. Very good. Michael, do you have a favorite for us this week? I have not watched it yet. However, I'm very excited to dive back into Tokyo Vice. It's oh, a yeah. show on, Absolutely. on Max. You, you saw the first season? I did see the first season. Did you watch it? You, I, I saw the first two episodes. I don't get it. Okay. so Should I, should I try harder? I thought it was excellent. Yeah. It's about, uh, I, I think, it. the only American that ever wrote for, is this a true story? Yeah, it's, I, it's, okay. it's based on a true story. I don't know if it's actually. Okay, so he, so he wrote for a Japanese newspaper, yeah. covered the mafia, and yep. got into some shit, and it's fantastic. It's the so Yakuza? Good. Yeah. Yeah, I saw the first two episodes four years ago when the first season came it's, out. It's so, it's, and I forgot it's about great. it. Excellent. You guys were nodding. You guys are both all in. It's good. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. I, I'm watching the new season. How is it so up. far? It's good. It's quality. Yeah. Um, I'm into it. What did you think of? Uh, are you still watching um, True Detective? Yeah, no, you, I'm back in season five. Uh, episode Looks, five was okay. The finale is Sunday. Episode five was okay. Yeah, I'm back in. I was off for one for one week. Four I was, was like, horrendous. I don't know. Four was really bad. But I went back. I watched True Detective season one. I've never seen it. Uh, start tonight. <laughs> Matthew McConaughey and um, and uh, what's, Woody and Woody Harrelson. Really, it's ve- it's excellent. It's ten, yeah. now ten years old, aged like fine wine. They're yeah. both incredible. The supporting cast is also amazing. It's, it's a just, murder. Uh, it's a murder mystery. That's over. That's probably not doing it justice. In fact, that's not. But it's right. it's inc- it's incredibly well done. Yeah. Are you, guys, are you guys Curb fans? Oh yeah. But you know what? It's I don't love it. First two season. first two episodes have not been great. No. I still love okay. it, but it's there were okay. some belly laughs. Um, the first episode there were some belly laughs when he's at the house party. Uh, the guy pays him to come to the house. There was some belly laughs in there. Uh, second episode wasn't good either. The second one with second the long jockey. Yeah, it was, it was a little yeah. uncomfortable. It was fine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I started listening to. Uh, I started to listen to the soundtrack. It's not the soundtrack. So there's a Bob Marley movie coming out. Oh yeah. Uh, which we, we I guess we kind of like 
we we've been expecting for a million years. Yeah. The family holds a lot of the cards. Yeah, with, I saw uh, it last night. Yeah, oh, how oh, was the movie? It was. Um, it's a tribute movie. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. So, but if you like reggae music, you're gonna love it. And who doesn't love Bob? Yeah, who doesn't love Bob? Like, yeah. Seriously. Yeah, it's a it's a fun movie that way. So yeah. so I was really excited about that, and then on Spotify popped up that they have a second album that's not the soundtrack to the movie. It's like music inspired by the film. So it's all cover songs of modern artists doing Bob Marley classics. Oh, that's uh, kind of cool. Yeah, it came out like two days ago, and it's awesome. It's like an eight-song EP, and I can't stop listening to it. It's pretty cool. So want to give everyone, uh, want to give everyone one love, which is music inspired by the Bob Marley film. All right, that's it from us today. I want to say thanks to uh, the whole crew: John, Duncan, great job this week; Rob, Sean, Nicole, Daniel. The crew is just. The crew is just growing. Don't say that. No, but it is though. We are. We are. No, but last time you gave them the tribute, we, no, we, we conked out. That's true. <laughs> uh, we we are. We're, the, we're an army now. Want to thank our very special guest, Rich Bernstein, the legendary Rich Bernstein. You mentioned Twitter. What's your handle? How do people follow you? Uh, at RB Advisors. At RB Advisors. How active are you? A uh, couple of times a day, three okay. times a day. Okay. Yeah. You like the feedback you're getting there, or is it mostly like just to broadcast or um, a little bit of both? No, we get both. We get okay. both. We get some snarky comments back. It's okay. 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 Go on there with your uh, with your Bitcoin takes. Those will be real. Those will, <laughs> those will be really popular. Clickbait. All right, Michael Batnick. Always a pleasure to sit with you today. Thank you so much. Uh, and hey, guys, don't forget ratings and reviews go a long way. They trick the algorithms into believing this is a quality program. And that helps us build our audience. So if you want to be in on the conspiracy with me, do a like, do a review. Make sure to uh, check out the YouTube channel as well. That's youtube.com slash the compound RWM. All right, that's it from us. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. So we like to do like a little warm up like that, just to give you a sense of what the show is going to be like. (laughs) And then, uh, you ready? You ready to start? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dude, was that fun? Yeah.